Abdul is on audio and he has a question for you next time. Okay, so I will read my question number one first, um, which is, why would someone want to be born in a war zone when there is extreme poverty and suffering? My question is, how does the IUOC perceive the VR environment? Is the IUOC not frightened of going to a tough environment? Or does it know completely well that it is just an illusion and it perceives it much more lightly as compared to us, the character playing the game? If so, why is the IUOC's perception of the VR so different to ours, the character, when we are a representation of it? So this is question number one. Why would somebody you know, want to incarnate into a place where where everybody's starving to death and being kicked around by some tyrant. Um, there's a couple of reasons for that. One is that it's not about when we go to, when we incarnate someplace, it's about learning and about growing up. It's not about necessarily feeling good and, and, you know, having a lot of parties and, you know, having a, a happy existence. Just because you're not having what we would call a happy existence doesn't mean that people who are in those kinds of situations don't make the most of whatever it is they have. So let's say you are in, I don't know, I'm not up on current events where people like today are starving and, and in this situation. But I can remember many years back when uh, there were several places, uh, Biafra was one of them where they had famine and people were healing and you got these pictures of, of looked like, uh, you know, three-year-old babies with big bloated bellies and every, you know, the mother was holding the baby looked like a, a walking skeleton and so on. They were, everybody was starving to death there. And, Yet, if you looked at that group, you saw the the fact, you know, you look at those and compared to your life, you're saying, oh, my God, how awful it is. But when you look at that picture, you see the love between that baby and that mother. You see the caring and the holding. You see the those sick little starving children out there giggling, you know, throwing little sticks at each other or whatever it is they're doing to amuse themselves, you know, digging in the dirt or whatever, but they got some kind of little game going and they're laughing and they're playing. Yes, they're also starving, but in the, in their case, starving is all they've ever known. Starving is a, is a normal condition. That's not something outside that's come to, you know, to come to get them. It's just the way life is. So they don't see it the same way you do, sitting in your place of plenty uh, and thinking how awful starving would be. Starving has been their life, or if it wasn't their life before, it is now. And people adjust to what it is they have to live with. But the point is not that. The point is that there's still love there. There's still caring there. And you see the, you know, the aid worker comes around and hands the mom a bowl of white mush. And you don't see mom grab the white mush and swallow it all. You see mom hold her little ball and she reaches out and she gives the baby some. And she gives some to this child. She gives some to that child. And she gives some this. And then she might take a little for herself. And she, she shares what she's got. And when it's gone, it's gone. And they all get by. 
she's still hugging her baby and the baby's hugging her. The children are still, you know, sitting around. Maybe they're not giggling now. Maybe they're just staring at, staring at the ground, you know, wide eyed, but that's, there's still a lot of caring there. There's a lot of giving. There's a lot of sharing in desperate times. It's not grabbing all you can get. The older child doesn't grab the bowl away from mom and, you know, try to drink it all. The older child helps share it to the younger children first. So that's why those conditions can be very growing. Yes, the times as we see them are horrendously awful. But to someone who's just getting their feet wet in this game or to someone who's been around a lot and really needs a challenge, those situations can can cause people to grow up a whole lot because all the petty things in life are gone. All the little ego things in life are blown away. What's left is survival. What's left is family. What's left is, you know, just getting by and doing the best you can with that. And they can do that under those conditions and the kids can still giggle from now and then. The mom still smiles when she sees the children doing something amusing. And there's still love in their life and caring. They care for each other. So that's one reason that you can do it. Now, all desperate situations aren't like that. Sometimes it is more like animals fighting with each other. Well, that wouldn't be a good situation to be in. But just because it's desperate and nasty and a war zone and terrible and the probability of those children growing up, even making it to you know, 15 is unlikely. But they were there. They were maybe alive for a few years. They were constantly maybe held by mom. They had brothers and sisters who would uh, help feed them. They were part of a little family and then they all died. And we'd say, oh, how tragic. But that would have been a couple of IUOCs who lived in a situation where there was very little ego, lots of love, lots of caring, and it didn't last too long. Maybe it's a real good way to start out if you're a beginner. You know, it doesn't last too long, but it, uh, it's very positively reinforcing as it lasts. And those people aren't thinking about, oh, the evil world. Look what the evil world has done to us. We deserve better. That's not really the way they're thinking. They're past that now, blaming on somebody. They're just trying to survive. So all the negativity is kind of gone. They know they're not going to live long. They're just trying to be nice and care for each other until they're gone. So would a newbie want to get into that? Sure, why not? It's quick, doesn't take long. It could be a very positive experience. The negative experience is with the people who say, how awful that I'm treated this way. How bad that, look at those you know, fat people over there. They've got more than they need. Why don't they share with us? Okay, all those things would be true, but those people now are unhappy. They're angry. They have lots of negativity. They feel hurt and damaged and devalued, but 
that's not where you are when you really are desperate at the bottom. You let all that go. That doesn't matter anymore. You realize that being angry and shaking your fist and blaming other people isn't helpful. You get to that big aha moment where love, kindness, and sharing is what it's all about. So you can learn that in those kinds of situations that look desperate to us. And if you are grown up pretty well, that could be a challenging situation to see if it grabs your ego to where you protest and, and uh, or whether you see if you just can't help everybody else survive the best they can, whether you're past the protesting. Now, if you've got more resources and you've got, uh, you know, food and everybody's going to be okay sort of thing, well, now's the time to protest. You know, get up, wave your arm in the air and say, hey, this is wrong. Because it is wrong. You know, I'm not against protesting, but you get to a point where you let that go. It's not important anymore. You're not going to succeed there. You need to succeed where you can, which is just in loving and caring for each other. So you really get down to basics in those situations. So they're not all that awful as they look to us. And we think that if we were there, how awful, how hard, hard that they have to be there. And that's true. And maybe we should put our fist in the air and say, how awful. You know, that shouldn't happen. And they serve then as a great example to us of the horrors of fear, what fear can drive people to, what self-centeredness can drive people to. They drive people to treat other people that badly. And we should learn from that. So see, there's lessons all around. So that's why it's not just a horrible, impossible thing that nobody would ever want to incarnate into. It uh, depends on the situation and where you are with relative to that situation. It's a great example to the rest of us. It's a good place for an IUOC to start off because it doesn't demand much of them. It puts them in a, in a place of, of a short life, but one that's that is uh, based on fundamentals and not on a lot of fear and ego stuff. So it wouldn't be that bad as a, as a starting point. Um, you'd come out of it, not with a grudge. Oh, okay. They, those rich people treated me really badly that time. I'm going to get them next time. You know, that's not the way you'd come out of it. That's one of the amazing things about when you see movies of people who are at that level of destitution is that they're not angry for the most part. They're accepting. They're past the anger. That's growth. That takes a lot of growth and understanding. So anyway, go on to the next part of your question. Yes, I'm actually trying to understand um, the IUOC's perception, right? So when they're when they're planning what kind of a life they want to send, uh, you know, this certain mm -hmm. IU into, like, so, I mean, you know, for us, this, this life is obviously very serious. So, but for the IUOC, when they, do they know that this is just going to be like an experience and it's not, you know, not that big of a deal at the end of the day? So I'm just kind of trying to wrap my mind around that. What do you, what are your thoughts? Okay. Well, in general, People who have not incarnated very often, they're at the beginning of their cycle. Now, you start somewhere in the middle. So that don't, when I say at the beginning, it doesn't mean that they, you know, still 
you know, lap water out of a jar, you know, when they're thirsty, that it means that they just started kind of in the middle, kind of at the average place, but they haven't yet gone through a lot of cycles of improvement. Typically, they just need experience and they need lots of experience. So at that point, there's not a lot of thought about planning the experience. It's mostly a jump in, you know, hop in, hop out. You go have an experience and whether it's desperate or whether it's fun or whatever it is, you know, maybe you're rich, maybe you're poor, you know, you, what makes, what's important is that it's a varied experience, a broad experience. So you'd really like to be rich and poor and black and white and yellow and green and middle class and lower class and upper class and a place where everybody walks and a place where everybody drives cars and a place where there's lots of technology and a place where there is no technology and it's very rural. You'd like all sorts of experience because that broadens you. It gives you bigger perspectives and bigger understanding about the way the world is and the way people are. So the, the variety is important. And in the beginning, you just need that experience. So you would kind of be willing to take anything. There'd be very little that you'd say, no, nah, I don't want to do that. The only reason for saying, no, nah, I don't want to do that is you'd already done it several times. Yeah, I want to do something different. So that's in the beginning. But as you evolve, you don't always evolve the quality of your consciousness uniformly. Sometimes there's some parts of you that are very grown up and are the parts of you that aren't. We don't grow up with all facets of ourselves evolving to higher quality all at the same time. So we may be really evolved in some ways and not too evolved in others. And then we need to work on those areas where we're not evolved. And that may need a certain specific kind of situation that would help give us the choices that we need. Not too hard a choice that we're likely to fail, but not too easy a choice either that we're likely not to learn much. So then we might pick certain kinds of situations to go into. Or maybe we've just de-evolved for the last two, you know, um, experience packets. We've made terrible decisions for the last two and we've been de-evolving. And now we want to just find something easy because we need a success. We don't want to keep the, you know, the, the failure line going. So now we want to pick something that's just not too hard. So now we want to be in some moderately prosperous, uh, middle class, you know, moderate situation where there aren't too many challenges one way or another. We're not uh, on the treadmill trying to make it to the top and we're not at the bottom scrabbling to, you know, keep our head above water. We're just in that middle kind of place where we can float along and there's not quite so many stresses. So that would be a good choice then to pick a place not too stressful, something that's easy to easier to succeed. And maybe uh, even with some limitations, you know, you might want to be uh, somebody who only has one leg or somebody who does this or that. That might give you specific choices about not feeling sorry for yourself. That would be your whole key. That was your that was your problem is you're always walking around. Woe is me, you know, wallowing in self-pity. And that's part that's the part of you that's least grown. So now maybe you'll be a cripple or you'll be this or you'll be that or you'll be really an athlete, except right at your your peak, you'll get run over by a bus and have your hips crushed or something. And now you have to deal with it. You know, some sort of thing you may plan to have 
that's kind of excessive planning. I, that wasn't a good example, but you know, you have some kind of kind of plan to give you the situation where you're dealing with things and not falling into self pity becomes a challenge, but a challenge that you can handle. Not so hard, not so easy. So that's at that point, then you're planning more. More of your your incarnations are thought are thoughtful before you go into them, depending on what you need. And if you don't know what you need, then you can ask. There are helpers that will help you look through some of your past lives and sort out what your problems were if you don't know. And you ask, or they might even suggest, oh, I could help you with that. And if you say, no, I got it, then they'll leave you alone. Your free will always is hell. If you say, yeah, okay, I need some help with that. What do you think my weaknesses are? You know, and they can help you find that out by, like I say, sorting through past experiences. And they can help you then find some place. Now, how do you find that place that you're going to go into? Well, generally, you don't. You kind of have a rough idea of what you need, and you let the system pick it for you. Because one, everything has free will, and any experience you pick may go sideways after you pick it, you know, it may change. It may not be the way you thought it was. It's just, none of this is for sure. As soon as you pick, say, well, this looks like a good situation, but it may be, but it may just change totally and not be what you wanted at all. So you don't know that. You have to let somebody else give you what they think would be a good probability for you to succeed, and then you take it and hope for the best. Do your best with it. Because you don't know enough to pick that. You don't have the source, the data, or the ability to make that assessment, oh, this would be a good one. Now, if we go further up the evolutionary ladder, now things are more planned. Now you've grown up a whole lot. Your quality of consciousness is much higher, and now your role is mainly as teacher, not so much worried about your, 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 pity, your self-pity anymore. You've gotten over all of that. And now you can help other people get over it because you can really relate to it. So now you get put in positions where you're more helpful rather than positions where you can personally learn things. And when you are being in a position of being more helpful, those are more planned than just the positions of you learning something. And that can get to the point where you're almost scripted because you've got a particular mission to go do or not. So that's kind of the how the planning goes or not or lack of planning and how people think about it and how they pick their IOCs. It kind of depends. You rely a lot on the system to give you a place to end up. If you demand, no, I want to be this race. I want to be this or the other. The system looks at it and says, well, okay, there's good lessons there for you. Then they'll give it to you. But if what you're doing is just something easy and you've been doing easy things and you just haven't been making much progress because you've always been doing the same thing or easy things, the system may say, eh, you actually need something with a little more challenge in it this time. And it may give you something that else. Now, if you say, no, I don't want that. You always get to say no. Then it'll pick something else. But you can sit on the curb waiting, you know, for a long time saying no. 
eventually you'll want to get back in a game and you'll say yes because you feel like you're stagnating and not learning when you could be learning. But the system will try to give you what you want. It just gives you what it thinks will give you the highest probability of succeeding. The system wants you to succeed. Your success is its success. But the system can't predict the free will stuff that's going to happen to that child or that embryo or whatever it's picking, that situation. There's no way to predict how free will is going to bounce that around or what might happen afterwards. So then you just get to deal with whatever you get to deal with. Does that help, Abdul? Yes, it does. Thank you. And I just have another question. We can probably go over this a lot quicker. Um, so this is how to overcome a non-confrontational personality. Um, I think I avoid trouble even at my own cost, and that is not a good thing. Do you have any suggestions in general? In addition, more specifically, how should you deal with the potential bully who seems more powerful? So I guess, yeah, that's my favorite question. Okay. Well, the non-confrontational personality doesn't have to be a bad thing doesn't have to be a good thing. It depends on what you make of that. If you're non-confrontational, the real question is, what are you learning? How are you growing? So it's like, you know, the key idea is why are you non-confrontational? If you're non-confrontational because you're afraid, because you don't want to make people angry, because you don't want to deal with anger, you don't like, you know, it makes you uncomfortable if somebody else doesn't like you, doesn't agree with you, just that fact that there's somebody standing there and they don't, they don't agree with you and they think you're wrong, that makes you uncomfortable um, or that they don't like you. And if that's a problem for you, then yes, it's a problem. That's something that you should outgrow, being, become a little more assertive, a little more authentic, where you do express who you are and what you are and then let the chips kind of fall where they may and eventually you you know, get good with that, where you can do that. On the other hand, you may be non-confrontational because you see it's totally useless to jump into an argument when the people arguing are all arguing about what they believe. And there are no winners in an argument like that. And most arguments are that way. Most people are that way. So if somebody is, you know, is arguing, let's say they're arguing, you know, most obvious thing, let's say they're arguing about religion. And uh, who knows, you know, so what these might be different sects within the same religion, different religions, whatever, they're arguing about it. And I would say almost everybody looking at that would say, I don't want to get involved. <laughs> I'm going to be non, I'm not going to jump in and give my two cents worth because that is an argument not worth having because it's not going anywhere. It's not like I can introduce some facts and everybody will listen to my facts and then it'll change people's minds. Arguments that are based on belief are beyond facts. You know, facts. Facts are not only not wanted, they're not accepted. They're thrown out as irrelevant. So if that's why you're non-confrontational, because most of the people around you who would be confronting you are belief-based and you just don't see you know, that you want to 
slap that hornet's nest with that stick, then I'd say that's probably good common sense. Keep your mouth shut and nod your head up and down, uh, you know, and and leave. Go someplace else. Be non-confrontational. So there's times for non-confrontation. And there's times from saying, well, wait a minute, have you considered this or have you considered that? And if you find that people don't like you uh, offering your opinions, well, then don't offer them anymore there. You don't have to win. You offered some information. It was rejected. Okay, go elsewhere. Sometimes you'll offer information and people will thank you. Oh, yeah, never thought of that. Thanks. But what you have to learn is offer your information and don't feel bad if it's rejected. You don't offer it with the idea that you're going to be the hero and change the whole uh, way the, the, you know, the conversation's going. You offer it just with the idea that I'm, I think I'm being helpful. If it's not helpful, then I won't do it. So if people don't like it, that's okay. That doesn't make you feel bad. If they do like it, oh, that's good. Glad I could help. You see, then you're not non-confrontational because you don't care if they don't like it. If that makes them, if it creates a confrontation, they get up in your face and say, well, that's the dumbest thing I ever heard. You could say, well, it's just, you know, it's my two cents. See you later. You know, go do something else. But then it's not about you. You see, it's about them. The confrontation, the negativity, the lack of openness is their problem not your problem. So it doesn't make you feel bad because you see it as their problem. But if somebody comes back and says, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. And you say, Oh, gee, I'm sorry. I must be really dumb. I'm sorry. I said something so dumb. Now you've made it your problem. You see when it's may not be your problem at all, may just be their problem. They're closed minded. They won't let in any fresh air in. They already have an opinion. They're belief based. So that's the key there. It's not whether you're confrontational or not. It's why do you avoid the confrontation? If it's because you don't want to seem stupid or you don't want to seem not in the know or you don't want to have to struggle, then don't. Just don't struggle. Offer a fact, offer information, offer a suggestion. If they don't like it, it's okay. Don't feel like that says anything negative about you. Just accept it and say, okay, that wasn't a good, you know, that wasn't welcome here. I'll take it elsewhere. I'll just let them have at it. So as long as that's your attitude, then you'll never worry about the confrontation because confrontation doesn't stick to you. You don't have to be defensive. Somebody says that's a dumb idea. You don't have to feel defensive. It was not a dumb idea. And if you think it's a dumb idea, then you must be dumb. You see, now you're just throwing anger back and forth, and that's not helpful either. If you think that you can explain it, well, no, I don't think so. And here's why I don't think so. And if they actually then are listening to what you're saying and pondering it, then good. You've been helpful. You've helped people think on a bigger thing, even if they disagree with you. You've given them some different information to think about. You don't have to win the argument or win them over. You don't have any, you don't have any object in it. You're just offering it to be helpful. If it's not helpful, that's okay. If it is, that's good. Maybe you'll add a little more.
So in that case, there's no way to get run over. And another good rule is stay away from bullies. <laughs> if you know that people are just a bunch of belief-based bullies, then don't don't enter into the conversation with them. If they're confrontational and you know want, just want somebody to beat up, well, go someplace else, make new friends, don't, don't hang out in that space. So did that did that help? Is there do you have one more yet? You wanted to ask? Uh, yeah, no, that was that was really helpful. I, I guess I kind of want to connect it um, to the last question, though. So, I mean, if you're in a situation where you know you might have to kind of stand up to somebody who is relatively more powerful, for example, is it, mm -hmm. is it a smart idea to kind of stand up to them, or you know, just kind of back away? Like, what do you think? What are your thoughts on that? Well, it depends on the situation. Let's say you see that there's some bully, and he's, you know. Let's say he's a a, a twelve year old bully, and he's beating up a five year old because the five year old has a candy bar and the big one wants it, and you're maybe uh, only uh, seven years old, eight years old, so you're not as big. Well, you should get in between. You should give the little kid a chance to run. Say, take off, squirt. <laughs> you know, let me uh, let me give you a break here. You know, let the five year old get a good, get a good head start. And then you can talk to the guy and tell him, you know, that's not nice. It's not your candy bar. And as he gets rougher and all like that, then maybe it's your turn to turn around and run next, you know, but at least you saved that little guy and you saved his candy bar. So that may be what you do. But let's say, you know, you're an adult. Well, the other one's the biggest one now in these two kids is only a 12 year old. So yes, you should step in and you should, uh, you know, try to set things right. You protect the, the small and the weak, and you keep the, you know, the the bully from from hurting anybody. Give him a good, a good uh, lecture on uh, not bullying, and anyway, maybe even you know, call up his parents and tell them what you found because they may really want to know, or maybe they don't, or you may just want to talk to kid and say, you know, find out what's what's eating him, what his problem is, what his life's like. You know, you may if you're an adult. You may actually be able to help him. You, know, you could maybe give him a little serious counseling that would be good for him. But yes, you butt, you butt in. So I'd, I'd say butt in anytime that you're protecting somebody smaller than you are. Then it's good to butt in whether they're big or whether they're not big. If it's a matter of protecting those that are weaker than you. If not, if you're just as weak, if the, if the kid being bullied was a five-year-old and you're a five-year-old too, then best you could be is a distraction or maybe some other kind of plan. May start a conversation with the bully about something else. Um, you know, try to help that way. But you can be as clever as you can be. But yes, if if the uh, if you feel that it's that is that you should step in, usually it's because you have to protect other people. That's the point. If it's just you, then and there's some bully and he's 12 and you're six and he wants your candy bar. Well, how fast can you run? And are there any adults within shouting distance? And, you know, can you uh, can you be clever? Oh, look over there. That's your mother. She's looking for you, you know, and when he turns to look, you get a head start or whatever. You know, deal with it the best way you can deal with it. But don't 
feel like you have to deal force if you're not capable of succeeding, unless the only way to help the person you're you're helping, the smaller person, is that if you absorb some of that, the brunt of that force, and then, okay, do it, because you're more likely to get away with it and survive it. If you're the eight-year-old kid, you can take a few hits and not be as hurt as a five-year-old taking those same hits. Do more damage to that five-year-old. Be more serious to that five-year-old than it will be to you. So then you'd step in and take those hits because you'll get over it better than they were. And it's the right thing to do. You're older. So does that help? Yes. Thank you so much. Thank you, Abdul. Giuseppe, you're next. Thank you very much. Hi, Tom. Um, my question, my first question is um, from the MBT view, how one should should deal with romantic love. Uh, from reading your books, uh, Tom, I, I saw that when you were little, you were talking with these non-physical um, friends and so on. And then you were talking about your, your, the love of your life and when it, it, it ends up that you, you meet that person that was the one. So my question is that, can we all find out that way who will be the one and how romantic love works and what is its function in virtual reality? Well, its function in virtual reality is to create more humans and uh, keep, the, keep the race alive. It's part of your, it's part of your instincts to look for someone of the opposite sex, mate with them, and eventually, you know, you create children and then you protect those children until the children are old enough to create more children. That's just instinctual. That's part of those instincts that made Homo sapiens, you know, a very survivable species. So you're driven to that. You're driven to mate. You're driven to have children. You're driven to take care of children. All those things are instinctual drives that that nudge you in that direction. So is there always a one and how do we find them? There isn't necessarily always a one. Probably most of the time, there's not a one. If you grow up isolated in a place where there's only, uh, you know, a thousand people, you will find a mate among those thousand people. And if you're, if you are, let's say, uh, in that group of finding potential mates, which are teenagers and early twenties who are looking for mating material, then let's say there's only six or seven girls or six or seven boys, and it's a closed group, you will find your mate among those six or seven <laughs> available females, you see, because that's what you get to choose from. Now, you may not get the one you pick, but you will end up with one of them. One of them will end up with you, and you may likely be very happy together. You see, so it depends on how free will bounces. What kind of what kind of environment do you have? You know, are you in an environment where, uh, you know, you work, you know, like, like uh, you know, you work at some highly technical job. Maybe you do uh, um, computer security or something and you do it at, at uh, military bases 
and that's your job, well, you're probably in a male environment most all the time. Your work is mostly a male environment. Oh, yes, there's females here and there, but you work in a largely male environment. And if that's your job and you go home, and all you do when you go home is watch TV and then get up the next day and go to work, and on, on weekends and Saturdays you, uh, you, know, you run around the block and watch different TV and maybe go surfing or something, then you don't meet many people. And if you don't meet many people, then it's going to take you a lot longer to find that mate. But you'll find them even if you don't meet many people. Even if you only meet the rest of your life, you're only going to meet 20 females. You'll pick one of them because the nudges to get this process working will find one of them soon. And if you happen to be in that environment where there are not so many people of the opposite sex, you can change that. And thinking that a good place to meet girls is at a bar is just a dumb idea. You know, and the same thing, the same thing with, with girls. Think you're going to meet nice boys at a bar is just a dumb idea. You know, that doesn't work that way. I mean, it can work. It has worked before, but it's just not the optimum place. You know, find, find a place where, uh, you know, people go for positive people go for positive reasons. You know, not negative people go for negative reasons. People generally go to bars because they want to get blot out because they, you know, life is not the way they want it. Their ego is crushed or some other reason, and that's why they want to go drink. So if you go to places where negative people go for negative reasons, you're not likely to run in as many nice people. So anyway, find that. Where is that? I don't know. You know, learn, take dancing lessons. When you go to take dancing lessons, you'll find there's always more girls attending the dancing lesson than there are all boys. They really need more males, but most males aren't that interested in learning to dance, but most girls are. So see, there you go. Take dancing lessons. Uh, go join a choir. Learn how to sing. Another thing: more girls like to sing than guys do, so you're going to be a you're going to be one guy with more girls if you go learn to sing. So join a choir someplace. You know your city, your your area you live in. You know a, a nearby church doesn't matter. Just go join a choir. Uh, do things that get you to meet other people and approach it not with the idea. I'm looking at a girl because I'm really, really horny and I want to make love and I'm looking for some girl. You know, if you got that attitude, it's not going to work out for you. That makes you a user. You know, you don't want that attitude. You just want to say, I'm going to meet people. I'm going to make friends with everybody. I'm going to be friendly and nice and, and giving and caring about everybody I meet. And some relationships will develop and sometimes they won't. And if they start to develop, I'll, I'll work with them and see how far they go. Some of them will go a little bit, and then they'll kind of fade out because it just didn't work out too well. And some of them will go a little further than that, and then they'll fade out. And some of them you'll be really, really think they're going great, but that person will walk away. You see, so you don't have any expectations. You just engage in relationships and let them work however they do. And when they fall apart, that's okay. There's more. You know, new new choir season meets next. You know, meets uh, next month. Yeah, it'll all work out. So if you're not impatient, and you just want to meet people and get to know them, that is the right attitude. And eventually, with that attitude, 
you will meet somebody who really likes you too, and you'll hit it off. And it may or may not go the distance, but if it doesn't, that's okay. And if it does, that's okay. And you keep investing more and more incrementally and until pretty soon you found the one. Well, you could probably, if you were locked up in 10 different social situations, you'd find the one in each one of those situations, you see? So there's lots of the ones out there for you. You just have to sort through them until you get somebody who has the potential to grow with you because you don't plan to be the same forever. You want to grow up and you have to have somebody else that wants to grow up too. somebody that's open minded, somebody that can hear a new idea, somebody that uh, doesn't immediately get defensive about everything, you know. So you find somebody that not necessarily grown up, but has the potential to grow up, wants to grow up. Ah, that's good. That's somebody that uh, you spend more time with. And the ones that just want to talk about themselves or just have their own needs met and they're not too interested in doing anything for anybody. They're just whatever. Then, eh, you know, they, they're still friends and you still maybe hang out with them now and then, but you're not too serious about those kinds. So you just let it go. It may take five years or 10 years. That's okay. You got time. Not a problem. So it, you have to have this non pushy attitude. This non-anxious attitude. You have to just be relaxed and let it happen however it does. And if it looks like, well, it's not happening. Look, I've been I've been singing on this choir for a week now and I haven't met any girlfriends. You know, that's the wrong attitude. You sing on the choir because singing is fun and it's enjoy it's social and you get to interact with people. You get to interact with the old people too. You get to interact with you find some guys there that you really like too. That talk about things that you like to talk about. You can find some old people there that you can talk about. Somebody like your grandmother's age, you know, you, they're fun too. So you just go talk to people, interact, be who you are, and something will happen before long. If you go like a hunter on the prowl, you know, you're a predator, you know, looking to bag a quarry, then Nothing will happen or the only query your bag will turn out to be ones you wish you had skipped by and uh, it just won't work out well. So that's the wrong attitude. I, I was a little bit more idealistic and romantic and I thought that we have like a soulmate and like maybe the large consciousness system said, oh, you are mature and you're mature and they, then you come up and you learn together mm -hmm. and blah, blah, blah. But mm -hmm. I, 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 I listen to you now and I'm going to try to, to change the, the yeah. approach. Maybe it's too yeah. romantic. That other um, thing, that other thing does happen occasionally, but that is the small, small uh, percentage off in the margins. Mostly you just be a nice guy, interact, enjoy people of all ages and just let what happens happens without you needing and wanting things to happen. As much as you have a big need for things to happen, oh, look at that girl, she's really hot. I, I'd like to you know, get with her. Well, now you've got needs and wants and desires and all that'll just get in the way and end up being a dysfunctional relationship because you're entering into it with the wrong attitude. Just care about people, get to know them, be friends, you know, that sort of thing. And let the rest of it happen on itself. No, there's no big, 
big romantic thing going on out in the ether that you have to find the right one that's your your true what is it uh, your candle your flame yeah your true flame i don't know people have words for those sorts of things but most of that is not true it's just nonsense you will find you will find romantic candidates just by being social and being yourself just being who you are be authentic always never put on a never put on an image to impress anybody because now you're impressing them with somebody you aren't and that's always going to end up in a in a problem so if they don't like you the way you are eh, they're not a good candidate so let the way you are be a good filter for good candidates yeah, so that's a great that's a great filter for for good candidates is that I'm okay just the way I am. If I have to be different, then not a good candidate. That's a good candidate for somebody else, but not for me. So that's uh, always be just authentic. Perfect. And my last question is: I was a little bit curious too, but because when I was reading your book. Um, you were uh, giving the readers, um, you know, extra reading like uh, Einstein and, uh, and um, Seth Speak. And for example, when I was reading Seth Speak, was really shocking the things he said. But in your book, you were also telling that you, were, you also had your investigation on this book and you had your non-physical friends uh, seeing what was true, what was not true of this. But my question is, what did you learn from said speak or what was the most interesting thing for you about this book or about this entity? Okay. Well, the thing that was interesting about Seth speaks was that that was the first book that I read that had a bigger view. All the books that I'd read before were all little views. You know, I'd read, you know, out of body is ectoplasm oozes out of your head and forms an etheric body that, you know, and so on. And it's got silver cords. All of these things were all belief based things, you know, with small thoughts. People had beliefs and attitudes. So they believe something that fit their beliefs and attitudes. And that was pretty obvious. You could see the, the connections, their, their, their conclusions. Oh, this is the way reality is was this is a reality that I can construct that suits all of my present beliefs. Uh, that wasn't interesting to me. I didn't want a reality that suited somebody's personal beliefs. So when I got to Seth, he was expansive, multidimensional. You know, we all are multidimensional beings living in a multidimensional reality. Well, that's kind of general, it takes in everything, but that was good. Nobody else took in everything. They weren't that general. They weren't thinking that big. Seth, Seth talked about the whole larger reality, not just what is out of body or what is this or how does uh, seeing ours work or everybody else's reality seemed to be kind of narrow, focused on specific kinds of things and their beliefs about those things. And I like Seth because his was wide open. His was a very... Um, What's the word? Uh, I'm, esoteric comes to mind, but that's not the right word. Abstract. This is a very abstract set of concepts. All right, I'm a physicist. I live in a very abstract world. You know, mathematics is very abstract. You know, and physicists model reality with with mathematics. So I live in an abstract world. I like that big view, big big approach. 
some of it just didn't make sense. Some of the stuff I read in Seth, I get really, all right, you know, I'll let that slide, you know, but I don't, you know, I, I don't feel nearly as confident or good about that, that that's going to turn out to be real as I do about this other stuff. So I like Seth's approach. I didn't necessarily follow any of his conclusions other than his big top level things, multidimensional beings in a multidimensional reality. Uh, my experience kind of said, yeah, that seems to be the way it is, but that's so vague. It doesn't give you a lot of information. You know, you got you need a lot more specificity than that. So the specificity then was my own contribution. I needed to say, okay, well, what does that mean to be a multidimensional being in a multidimensional reality? What, what constitutes dimensions? What constitutes being? You know, and it, it starts other questions and I didn't feel like I, I, I expected Seth to give me that. He was just giving me this big overall picture and everybody else was giving me their little belief-based picture. So I like Seth and I read it and I thought, wow, this is the best one I've read so far. So he was kind of the, the gold standard in other people's opinions about the nature of reality was from Seth Speaks. And it was just because of the largeness of it and the abstractness of it. Uh, it uh, and it fit my experience pretty well. But there's, it, was, it was very general. You know, it didn't give you a lot of specifics. The specifics it gave sometime got down into the little picture again, and it ended up being belief-based. A few things were just illogical. You know, Seth said that, uh, you know, the past, present, and future all happen at the same time. There is no time. Well, Seth made that statement, and I run into thousands of people that believe that as a fact. But when I heard that, I said, that's nonsense. It's illogical. It doesn't make any sense. It just doesn't make any sense. You know, it's an oxymoron. It, uh, it's nonsense. But where did, where did Seth get that idea? Well, I would guess that Seth got that idea from Jane. In other words, Seth didn't have the idea. It was Jane's idea. Where did Jane get that idea? Well, that was the standard thing that physicists were saying back in the 60s and 70s after, you know, they were looking at relativity and other things, physicists trying to justify physical reality and materialism came to the conclusion that there couldn't be any time or past or present or future. It all had to be one thing. It was all done. Deterministic. It's a machine. Well, because that was what science was saying, and because science, of course, is always right, because they're the high priests, they know all these things. If the scientists are saying it, then it must be true. And when Seth said something similar, that, that you could get around in the past, you know, you could go experience the past, you could experience future, he didn't say future probability, but he said, you know, within the future, he meant probabilistically, and as you could do all these things and you could do it all now, well, Jane took that, which you can. You know, I can sit here and I can go look at the past database, the future probable database, and be active in the present all at the same time. Well, Seth was telling her something like that, and she interpreted that with the truth from the high priests of science, which was they all exist together and, uh, you know, they're all the, you know, there is no future or there is no time, there is no past and pro, you know, there is no past and future. 
It all just happens in the present. And I think that's what happened. Jane had a, had a uh, preconceived notion that she got from the intellectual language of the time, which was pop science about the wonders of relativity. And that's what, that was the concepts that scientists were favoring. And then when she got Seth talking about, well, you could be in these places anytime you wanted, then it made it sound like they were all static. Therefore, they all had to be there at the same time. If you could get into them whenever you wanted, makes sense. And she just took that little logical leap that was wrong. And presto, Seth was saying that there was no future and there was no past and so on. And once Seth said it, it's a fact because Seth's the big guy out in, out in inner space someplace. You know, he's out in the, in the big beyond where everybody knows everything. Well, you know, there are no more secrets out there. Well, of course, that's nonsense, too. People out there don't know much more than the people in here, for that matter. You know, it's uh, it's not like when you die, you suddenly become wise. It doesn't work that way. But that's so I can see that Seth had some errors in it, some things. But Jane Roberts was really good. Jane Roberts, you know, Bob Monroe was really good. But Bob Monroe said things that were things that had to do with his own fears and his own beliefs. And so did Jane. You can't help that. The medium gets information, has to understand it, gets data, has to turn it into information, which means they have to interpret it. And then they have to put it into their own words and send it back out as data again. So they get data, turn it into information, interpret the information, take that information and recode it into their own data and send it back out. So you got two error prone things going on there, the interpretation and then the retransmission. Both times where one, you're taking data to information and then information to data. And both times there's errors. You can't help but have errors if you're if you're doing that kind of work. There's no way for Jane to erase her knowledge and her memory and her fears and her beliefs from <coughs> the way her interpretation is interpreting things. You can't disconnect those two. Even though Jane would kind of disappear and wouldn't necessarily remember all the details, doesn't matter. You can disappear driving home at night, get to your home and not remember how you got here. You know, oh, I'm home. See, I don't remember the trip. You know, just because you're not paying attention doesn't mean that you're not processing. So even though Jane would drop out and not be not be uh, paying attention, she was processing and it was her her own understandings that we're interpreting the data and then passing it on. It's just not a perfect process. So errors are not something that, you know, I mean, I don't complain about the errors. It's just natural in that process. But it doesn't mean that there isn't anything good in the process. Seth said a lot of really clever things that kept me thinking and that big picture ideas of things. So I like Seth, learned I think a significant amount of Seth about Seth. I mean, what he said, but not so much in any details of any conclusions he came to, but just that his big picture was big enough to include everything because that's what I was looking for. I didn't want to just explain out of body or just explain how people see yours or how they remote view. I wanted to explain quantum mechanics and I wanted to explain all of the experiences that I was having and nobody was doing any of that. Everybody was piecemealing little tiny sections and 
they weren't doing it very well because it was obvious where their own beliefs were coming in. So Seth was a good was a good find to read that. Just then he stepped the whole game up to another level of understanding that was where I needed to go to. So I think Seth was very useful. Tom Campbell here. INMBT Events, hope you liked this video. We now have well over a thousand hours of free video on this user-friendly, ad-free YouTube channel. Though these videos are free to our viewers, they represent many thousands of hours in production and editing, and many thousands of dollars invested in video and audio equipment, along with the required computers and software to store and process the raw video into finished products. So far, all of this content has been funded directly out of our own pockets. Be assured, we will always continue to do what we can. It's our life, our purpose, a labor of love that we will continue to pursue as best we can. However, those pockets are not as deep as they used to be. Thus, we are now seeking to augment our resources with support from our viewers. If you find something of significant value in our videos, please consider supporting their production through our Patreon account or through a one-time donation. The links are in the description below. Thank you.